I can't tell you one person that doesn't think that hope's okay. So it's always been um, just part of my life. You question things in healthy ways. You move around things and sometimes you're absent for a little while because you don't quite understand why and where and how things are happening in that um, religious space. But it's, you always find your way back. And so I suppose I find myself at home. I'm Teresa Hudson, coordinator of the Community Information Centre in Townsville, and this episode of Brave has me in conversation with Candy Dempster, the principal of Ryan Catholic College. Schools have been hit particularly hard through COVID because of the central role they play in educating and supporting students. We talk about Candy's previous role as a school principal in Charters Towers and also explore some of the differences between rural and regional communities. The Community Information Centre would like to pay respects to the Woolgarugaba and Bindal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded. Candy, can we start right at the start with you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Brisbane, um, northern suburbs of Brisbane, to uh, Sri Lankan parents and um, spent my whole Life in Brisbane, my formative years, uh, primary school, high school, university. And what was growing up like in Brisbane um, with a Sri Lankan background? Look, um, that's all I knew. So, you know, the comparative stuff comes later in life. So when I was growing up, it was happy, it was outdoors. We had family and friends around all the time and always centred around good food you know, lots of laughs, beach shack holidays around the north, Caloundra particularly. Um, so really happy days. Um, quite a wide network of family. Um, both sets of my, my parent, my mum and dad's family are, are in Brisbane. So grew up with cousins and had a good life. And then, so growing up through school, did you also, did you always know you wanted to get into education? Look, I think I did. I didn't know it at the time. Um, why I say that is I loved unlocking ideas in people. You know, when you ask about, you know, what, what place do you play on a team? Um, I played a lot of sport when I was younger and I was always the one who liked to see different techniques happen by me suggesting, you know, hold the ball this way, perhaps it'll go there. And then it went there and that, the light that went on in that person's face and you thought, oh, that's really good. And so did I always want to do it? Mm, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Because did you grow up around having anyone in your family be an educator or a teacher as a mentor or something you looked up to? I found that when I went to high school, I think, I had some excellent high school teachers and um, just good people, fun-loving, bit of humour, but intelligent. And um, you could see they never gave up on people. So I thought, oh, that's something there. You know, I could use my brain and I could also teach in all sorts of ways, you know, sport, drama, music, all those sorts of things. So no educators in my family at all. But I went down that line, went to the University of Queensland and studied some economics and some ancient history and loved it, enjoyed it for the three years. But as I was coming to the end of it, I thought, oh, I don't know what to do with that. And so I went to Australian Catholic University at um, Banyo there 
in Brisbane and did the graduate diploma of education it was called then for a year and got into classrooms and loved it you know like-minded people yeah lots of lots of fun and where was your first um, role as a teacher well straight from uni at um, ACU I went to Alice Springs I think I turned 20 when I went there so I was very young uh, going into teaching so taught in the Alice for nine years at um, was called Catholic High School initially and then it merged into Our Lady of the Sacred Heart College so that was a transition or prep we call it here prep to year 12 school uh, loved it loved it went through all sorts of different roles teacher house coordinator careers coordinator all sorts of things um, and then went to um, assistant head of campus head of campus and loved it loved the lifestyle too you know the bush regional living and, um, and you've never grown up in that you've grown up in in the city that's right I, I don't know where that's come from I suppose I'd, I like being around um, smaller communities and I suppose growing up we had a tight um, family community and um, we didn't keep it to ourselves so to speak but you just knew exactly where you fitted in and you didn't mind everyone knowing your business um, and it was fine and I think that's probably where um, I always talk about you know we always come back to our regional heart and so I've spent more time in regional centres than I have in cities and um, you know, in regional communities, I think what actually is is the thing for me, talking to you about this, is the people around you become your network, your family, and you just form such important bonds because you're vulnerable. There's no one else to lean on. And so you, you get a radar for the types of people you want to be around. There's an acuteness of feeling there, I suppose, that you probably don't get in a well, maybe you do. I can't speak from experience, really. But um, from a, a wider city, um, the smorgasbord isn't there, so you've got to be a little bit more selective. No, I agree. We've, through this podcast, we've travelled out to Charters Towers and we've also travelled to Winton. And a part of that was to sort of unpack what supports and services are here in our city and what supports and services are in regional. And what we really discovered was the supports and service in regional are the people in mm. the communities, the neighbours, the friends, the man sitting at the bar, whatever that may be, they're the supports in those communities because they don't have an abundance of agencies and funded services and how they get through it is by supporting each other. We're here in town so we have an abundance of services that you can lean on as well as your neighbour. But um, Agreed. for the regional towns, both in Charters Towers and Winton, for that, for them, was just, you wouldn't have it any other way. Mm. You know, I feel that here too. You know, I've only been in Townsville for 18 weeks. It, it is a city. It's the best of both worlds. There's still that real small town connection. And even where I'm working now, it's that same feel. Big school, but very small pockets of community feel. I agree. So your career has taken you through to Tasmania, I believe, mm. back to Brisbane, and then out to Charters Towers. Talk me through your journey in Charters Towers, um, working at a regional school. Mm. Um, I started midway through 2018 at um, Columba Catholic College in Charters Towers as principal there. 
And um, very quickly I realised that um, it's actually what you said before, that the town is very connected to its community and its schools are a major part of that community. Um, what it was, the educational hub, wasn't it, of the of the West there for a long, long time, and I'd like to consider it continues to be. Um, so when I started, it was about getting to know people. It was really getting to know the families, going on all of the Western trips around to, you know, Julia Creek, Richmond, Carumba, um, all around there to try and meet families and to understand their stories. And why would you send your children to Charters Towers to go to school? Um, and I learnt a few things, I suppose, on the very first trip. I think I was principal for four weeks or five weeks, and here I was in a car with the deputy principal for five days, and it was about giving opportunities, you know, opportunities for children so that they can still maintain their the roots to the land and their culture and their communities, but to look outside themselves. Um, and, you know, that part of Charters Towers, I suppose that sums it up really well for me, being part of um, the the council, the representative tourism groups and economic groups there in Charters Towers is really important to me to understand where does the heart beat in the community and where do my families work and where are the um, job opportunities for the students as they finish. And that allowed me to really understand that there is such loyalty and such passion for the community to support young people that I, I think I had a winning uh, mix there that um, people got to know me because I'm on these committees but I also like doing things in the community just because I actually enjoyed going I mean the school probably had something going on there as well but um, you know I really liked the way that the community became the school and the school relied on the community it was just what we do for children in our community to keep it strong um, so in amongst it all, I realised that um, the vulnerability of um, parents who sent their children to a boarding school. So, you know, the acute desire for parents to want their children to do better and give over their children to me became something really um, instilled in me. You know, every child, and I used to say to them, um, you know, you're one of mine. I'm fiercely loyal. You'll know exactly where you stand with me, but if you need me, I'm there. So I would go and visit the boarding houses, you know, during the week and on the weekends, not because you know, there was a quota that I had to do, that doesn't exist, but I really did want to see them playing, going to sport. You know, I used to bring the dog to the boarding houses and have the dog run right around the boarding houses just to make them feel part of their community. And I think that's what I learned. The community and the people asked me to behave in a certain way and I hope I brought a bit of that to them. When we interviewed a lot of people out at Winton, um, a lot of them as they were growing up attended boarding school in Charters Towers and a lot of them spoke about how hard it was for them leaving home and um, these remote communities who still send their children to school now would still be equally as hard but they've got a nourishing and a supportive environment they're going to and you take that with pride. Mm. Mm. I met you in Charters Towers when we were on the regional forums for the state government mm. and listening to you speak that day, I felt an overwhelming sense of how passionate you were, not only for the school that you were working at, but the community 
that you were representing. And a lot mm. of these forums we sat there and the word infrastructure was totally always tossed around and economic development. And it used to really get on my nerves <laughs> about <laughs> we're building this and we're creating jobs. But the importance of creating the community underneath these jobs has been a really big, hard thing I feel to get government to understand. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think the um, the social drivers aren't as profitable as the economic drivers. Now, what I mean by that, I suppose, is, you know, when you build infrastructure, you can see it and then you can, I'll be facetious here for a minute, you can take a photo in front of it and badge it and tag it and say, this is what your money has created. But underneath it all, it's the understanding of um, is that something that is going to allow the community to thrive in their own certain way. For example, um, you know, we know that the allied health services are absolutely under pressure. Um, COVID aside, it's, they've always been under pressure um, because economic drivers haven't been able to, well, to meet the social disruption that's been happening in people's lives, domestic violence, poverty, where people have to work an inordinate amount of hours where they don't get to see their children, their children look after themselves. And that as a result in an educational setting means that schools pick up some of that and then act upon things that aren't quite joining dots when they go home at night because, or whoever's there, um, they're not there often because they've got to go and work. So I think building things without the structures in mind to know that the community is healthy enough to take those jobs is a big miss. But I think the way that governments talk about the economic drivers is because it's tangible. The other stuff is a really hidden opportunity, I suppose. And sometimes when you ask the questions, you don't like the answers. So I don't know whether the questions are being asked in particular ways. Um, in education, we are really grappling and asking we need our allied health support for our young people in schools. Um, and I'm not just talking adolescents, I'm talking my little ones as well. There's a change in the way society is impacting upon how children need to behave. Earlier and earlier and earlier, we can talk social media, we can talk all those things, but it's also to do with the economic drivers because people need to work now more than ever. So I think we need to think about the economic drivers probably need to talk about not just mental well-being, but what's not well in the community. What, what are we seeing are the four or five pivotal issues and then let's go and let's build some structures around that. Whether it interfaces as a dialysis unit somewhere or a, you know, some new road somewhere that needs to get people who were disenfranchised from one community to another because the road wasn't great, that's the infrastructure that we're talking about at a social level but it's not sexy infrastructure. Does that no, make sense? Yeah, I like that. It's not sexy. Mm. It's so true. Mm. And it's not their talk, is it? No, and it's hard to it's hard to quantify. So it's all that qualitative stuff that, you know, if you're talking about setting targets, it's hard to set targets because a lot of those qualitative things have so many variables. If you say we want, you know, this many percentage of people to be mentally well so that then the referrals are down by whatever percent, you may not reach it. 
because other variables take have an impact. So it's a dynamic. You've got to keep asking and keep asking and keep asking. With the floods, and I know the floods didn't impact Charters Towers, but you just mentioned earlier on when you first went out to Charters House how you did a tour out to all of the regional communities, mm. Julia Creek, and mm. those places were flood affected. So some of those children were mm. at your boarding houses. Mm. What was that like for children and families in that space? Yeah. And how did the school support that? Yeah, it was terrible. I know that we had kids coming back late from um, their properties, etc., cetera, um, because of the impact of the flooding and that, you know, lose thousands of head of cattle. Um, and we had staff members and board members and all sorts of things going and volunteering on properties where they would humanely dispose of the, the, the cattle um, and clear, you know, the land and put the fences back up and all sorts of things. So it did have a major impact and it was depressing in a lot of ways. Um, the Catholic education system um, through the federal government, I believe, gave some relief funds and I remember actually making quite a few phone calls to families going through the list of the addresses and ringing every family to say how are you what's your need and saying listen don't worry about fees for the moment I know there's no handout um, you know I'll be asking for it back when you can don't worry but um, you know at this point in time can we put a hold on that and we've actually got this to to go towards your family if you need um for food, etc. Some of them had nothing. Like, there was nothing. Um, and St. Vincent de Paul also stepped in with um, food and assistance and clothing and all sorts of things for some families. So after things sort of settled down and the restocking um, came, then there's, there's a lot of time that families needed their children with them to work the land, to fence, to do all sorts of things. So there's you're also supporting the educational environment for those um, families who needed their kids with them. I recently found out that if children don't attend school in the first two weeks of school at the start of a year, um, that's when the school, you know, gives their numbers into who's attending yeah, and they the get census. funding. Mm. So with the floods at the beginning of the year, how did that impact we, there was, um, again, very clear direction from the, the system that said, give us your numbers and we'll, we'll put that in as a, um, an anomaly for this year. So those numbers were counted. Mm. Mm. So and the reason I found out about the census and schools, which then affects their funding for the year and how much support they've got to support children, is a lot of families hold back their kids starting school at the start of the year because they don't have food. They don't have their uniforms or mm. whatever impacts are happening in their household. These children are missing out on the first two weeks of school, which then ultimately impacts school funding, which then rolls on through the year in support. So how do you combat that mm. and support families to understand the importance of having your child ready on the first day, mm. but to support them to get yeah. ready on the first day? I suppose it comes back to knowing you your families and having the processes in place for absenteeism, basically. Um, if the process is that after three days you don't hear from someone, you make the phone call. And there are people charged with doing that in schools. And you do find out, you know, if they're 
recidivist sort of um, families who are notoriously late in coming, you, you go there beforehand. And um, Charters Towers, we knew the families who would struggle to come back and um, you put in place some strategies either at the end of the previous year or straight away when school starts. You normally have that, that week beforehand before the, the students come back that you make time for them to come in. Or you make sure that there are there's someone who can meet them at the uniform shop at that particular time. Because a lot of the kids were self-starters themselves where their parents were working. So when they were at the uniform shop, we had one of our staff members there, they picked up the uniforms. Thanks for that. We'll give mum the bill. The bill might have come or might not have, depending upon what we can offer the family in consultation. Nothing's ever done in secret. That's... Uh, bit patronising, I mm. think. Following the floods then, what did that do for trauma for the children then? Because it is, it's a trauma I know with um, children here in Townsville and even my own children every time it rained. Mum, are we going to get a flood again? Mm, that's right. But these children are in a place where they're nowhere near their family to be mm. reassured. Yeah. Do you know, I counter that. They are such resilient people. It's part of being on the land. And, you know, initially there would be a few phone calls. Mum, is everything okay, etc. And there'd be an assurance and, um, you know, particularly in the boarding house, really switched on people who would do the proactive conversations, make the phone calls. It's all about knowing the student and knowing their family. You know, if you can get that right, if you've got those connections, you just naturally pick up the phone. Picking up a phone, making a phone call is so much more better than an email. Oh. Um, I'm constantly saying pick up the phone and ring, don't send an email. Mm-hmm. And look, I'll, I'll be honest with you, in uh, regional areas, in remote areas, you know, they're, they're out mustering, they're out doing all sorts of things, you know. Sometimes a sat phone does pick up. So they'll always re- respond to a phone call. There'll be reception somewhere, but they're always not going to get on an email. Yeah. It's different. With covid um, at the towers in a boarding school, what did that look like, and what was what was that headache like? <laughs> oh, it was the the headache that n- didn't go away really. Um, but saying that, it was a bit duplicitous when COVID first hit. Um, there was let's send the children home a bit early because we don't know what's going to happen with you know will will they be able to come back, and if they get stuck in the boarding house, who's going to look after them? So there was that sort of palaver that happened. But then um, when the, the children were so keen to come back, we did the remote learning with essential workers and all sorts of things. And listen, in a, in a regional centre, there's lots of essential workers going on. So you had this dual lifestyle happening where a lot of the kids were at school still and we were still doing remote learning. Um, when it was time for the boarders to come back and the rest of the students, they could not wait to return. Not because what was happening remotely didn't work for them. Um, And there were some instances where it it didn't work well because of connectivity issues. But when, yeah, when they said, um, I said, it's time to come back, they came back. They were ready. So that gave us, I suppose, that there's hope in, you know, any negative situation, they were keen to come back. However, when they came back, there was two sets of rules. There were some rules for the boarding house in living arrangements that were different to the rules in the day school. So some of these poor babies would be having, you know, their own specific shower and toilet that they only had to use and they had to disinfect after they used it and high-touch services they cleaned down and we had staggered 
dining arrangements that kids couldn't eat together. We had to have different shifts and all sorts of things. But then in the day school, you can go to the toilet wherever you like. You know, we had to spend quite a bit more money on cleaning for high touch services, etc. So in, in the budget world, um, that had an impact on, on bottom lines, um, but really well supported by the system as well. I can only speak on behalf of Townsville Catholic Education, but um, there was an enormous amount of support there, I'll be honest, that um, helped out with that, the extra costs. Um, so it was a, a dual world. Um, I remember, Teresa, that there was a time where the kids go on town leave on Saturday mornings um, to get their groceries or meet with other mates from different schools and all sorts of things. And we had to stop town leave. So here were these kids who were caged pretty much after they came home from school into the boarding house, they stayed there. And so we had to manoeuvre that a little bit and um, terrific people. And in a regional town, like, look, COVID didn't exist throughout North Queensland. So trying to contain and cage for something that's not in these regional towns is so hard. Mm. And there was... um, I mean, there was a little bit of kickback, I have to say, from parents and some community Understandably. members. Understandably. Yeah, saying, you know, what are you doing this for? I said, I've got no choice, you know. And they used to say to me, um, well, what's your personal opinion? And I said, my personal opinion, mate, has no bearing on anything. As much as I like to think it does, it's, <laughs> I don't have any impact on it. And so there was, um, you know, we actually went out of our way when restrictions lifted to be able to run activities you know, we had the formal and uh, there were restrictions inside and all this sort of stuff. So we had it outside, you know, on the in the Bullring Terrace, it's called there at uh, Columba. And um, it was gorgeous. Honestly, it was exactly us. It was outside. It was community run. The kids looked magnificent and we could do it. There was no dancing. It was the time where there was no dancing either. So here were these these children who graduated without dancing the night away but they did it you know like nothing stopped us from giving them what they deserved and with shops closed and not being able to go shopping to get their outfits and their gowns for graduation um, I interviewed Katie from Chartist Towers who played a role in in getting gowns oh yes to donate Katie Beveridge yes hmm and you know like there's that's the community that's what you're talking about before there is always a way and i have to say regional communities they've always been the design thinkers they've been the stem thinkers because um you just can't pop down to the shop can you and get that part or you know so there's a real ingenuity in the way that things are thought about really solutions oriented people and i suppose what frustrated me the most is we need to have been asking them more. They've got the answers. They're, they're used to finding solutions to things. That's what the community does. They find a way mm-hmm. to make it happen. So you're now principal at Ryan Catholic College in Townsville? Yes. And I understand you've only been here for 16 weeks or mm, 18 weeks. Yeah. But what's the transition like from working in a regional school to what's available in a city school? It is a real eye-opener to me. Um, staffing 
is something that cities, there's more availability than in regional centres? Uh, I suppose some of the um, social issues are more intense in the city. You know, as far as, as I said, um, family disruption and impact on mental well-being for children. And you're at a bigger school too, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, uh, five times bigger than the one in, in Charters so Towers. that would explain. Is that significant? Um, but saying that the services are better for us to do that wraparound support with, you know, the teachers and the pastoral leaders and the guidance counsellors, the time frame and the time lags aren't as acute as they are in regional places. And I know that would span to the other places that you went to as well, you know, Winton and the Towers, there's... It's very difficult. So attracting teachers to regional is a challenge, isn't it? Absolutely. It is the people used to ask me, the board, what keeps you up at night? It's always staffing. It's always about attracting um, and retaining um, quality teachers. And um, in the regions, you know, we've got to incentivise. And um, I don't think the incentives are matching what's needed. You know, is, is the incentives housing? Is it that's fair enough? Absolutely. But is that the real reason as to why a person would stay? Because you mentioned about retaining that teacher. So if the incentive is housing, that's to come and save up and so then they can fly the coop and go on again to correct. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what does a community need to to give to young people? And, you know, there's more and more middle-aged people entering the teaching profession, which is fantastic. Um what are their lifestyle indicators that they want to have with teaching? Um, so recruitment and attraction of staff, very different, very different. The capacity for um, professional learning, professional development, the opportunities in the city is much higher. Um, you do tend to not send as many people to places, not because you don't want to, is because there's no one to cover the classes in a regional place if you send those those people um, out to learn more so that they are better at their job. So that's been a real change. The system itself is really supportive. They're grappling with the chronic shortage of teachers. So I know when I was in the towers, um, it would literally be a phone call. Listen, I want to send these people. Who have you got in Townsville who could come? And they're there. You know, so the system itself is aware there's just not enough. Mm-hmm. Why the Catholic education for you? I've always been in Catholic education. I went to a Catholic primary school, Catholic secondary school, went to a Catholic university and then went to Alice Springs. It was a Catholic school, Tasmania Catholic school, Brisbane, Townsville, Charters Towers. Why? Um, I just think I fit there. There's a whole sense of the whole child and every educational jurisdiction would say that, um, and rightly so. But what by whole child, I think we mean that real sense of that spiritual nourishment that you don't realise you need until you need it. And, um, you know, it comes with uh, what I call hope. You know, the church is about hope, ultimately. And um, it's part of that seeing that there's a rich history. There's a lot of history going on there, but it's all about finding those hope stories. And um, I can't tell you one person that doesn't think that hope's okay. So it's always been um, just part of my life, you know. Um, you, you, you question things in healthy ways. 
you move around things and sometimes you're absent for a little while because you don't quite understand why and where and how things are happening in that, you know, that um, religious space. But it's, it's, you always find your way back. And so I suppose I find myself at home. Mm. Candy, thank you for joining me today. Teresa, you're very welcome. Thank you. BRAVE is jointly funded by the Commonwealth and Queensland governments under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. This podcast is produced by Damien Lawarden.